Well, good morning. And please join me uh, once again in your Bibles in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, as we continue to worship our God together, now by submitting to His Word that He has so graciously given us this morning. Ruth chapter 4, uh, we complete our study of this book this week. It has been uh, eight weeks uh, that we have been working through this text. We come this morning to verse 11, and we'll look at verses 11 to 22 as we complete our study this morning. Now, the best way to characterize what we're going to see in our time together this week is to simply say that we finally get to witness the outcomes of God's work in Boaz, leading him to his decision to redeem Naomi. All of the story has been building to the events of last week when we finally saw Boaz gain the right of redemption. And so this week we get to witness the outcomes of that blessed event. Uh, those outcomes are going to show up in a number of forms as we work through our verses this morning. We're going to see uh, two blessings prayed upon the participants. Uh, we're going to see a greatly celebrated birth, uh, the birth of Obed, in our text this week. I've tried as well to reserve some time for us to deal, since this is the last week in our study, uh, there have been some issues that this book has raised to our attention that really deserve more time than we've been able to give to them. So we will uh, reserve some time at the end of our, of our morning to deal with some big picture matters that are raised to our, to our minds. Uh, so if you're taking notes and if you uh, enjoy an outline for our, our study this morning, it's pretty easy to remember. There are three points to what we'll do this morning. We're going to see blessings, babies, and the big picture. That's what we're going to do. Blessings, babies, and the big picture. Um, the sermon will begin at verse 11, but as we stand now to read, I'd like us to begin reading at verse 9. So we'll read Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 to 22. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and, he, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. These are the words of the Lord. Please be seated. And before we go any further, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Father, we thank You for what You are giving us this morning. We come to You hungry for Your Word. We come to You aware of our desperate need for it. Lord, You know our hearts. You know that we also uh, come this morning heavy in heart at the loss that we have suffered with Frida's passing. And we want to thank You together this morning. We thank You for the assurance that we have not only of her safety in your hands, but of the freedom that she has now received from pain and sorrow. Lord, you have faithfully brought her to the end of her journey in this life. And as we look around and we see one another, we see our brothers and sisters here that we, lo that we love as well, uh, we, we know we're looking at brothers and sisters whose journeys are not yet complete. And so this reminder makes us all the more grateful that you have not left us today without your word to guide us. We pray that you would do so by the power of your spirit. And in Jesus' name do we pray. Amen. Well, coming into verse 11, we come to the first of a couple of blessings that are going to be prayed uh, in our passage. This uh, enters in with the elders and the townspeople. We just saw at the end of last week Boaz addressed them and declare what he is doing legally here, taking on the responsibility to redeem Naomi and her family and their land. And they respond this morning in verse 11 with the, uh, with the expected reply. They say to him, we are witnesses. As soon as this, this, um, as soon as this transaction is completed, it, they immediately begin to give praise and prayer at the, at the occasion. They pray for blessing upon the new family that has been created now with Boaz and Ruth. And it's really beautiful to see the way that they, uh, that they conduct this prayer of blessing. They weave it from one member to the other. They weave it toward Ruth and toward Boaz and address the two of them together as a family. It's a beautiful prayer that they're giving here. They address Ruth first in this blessing. You see verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like, and then they give a couple of comparisons. They compare her in their prayer for God's blessing. They compare her to Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, you remember, are the two wives of Jacob, and it tells us there these are the women, quote, who built the house of Israel. These are the two that were seen as the uh, mothers of, of Israel. They compare her then in verse 12 to another woman of their own history, to Tamar, who bore Perez. May the Lord make 
the woman coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. These are the two comparisons that are given. And it's quite a comparison to prey upon this new bride, Rachel and Leah, Israel's founding mothers. Tamar, who is thought of and spoken of as Judah's tribal mother. These are uh, in the town of Bethlehem, uh, within the tribe of Judah. These are the big names when it comes to women that you might pray uh, to be in the likeness of, to follow after their footsteps. And they direct their prayer of blessing onto Ruth uh, in both of those directions. In verse 11, they also bless Boaz. They say of him, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is another instance of a typical Hebrew way of speaking where you say something and you say it in two different ways. Uh, so it's the same message being given twice there. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, may you be renowned in Bethlehem. Ephrathah is the ancient name for the town of Bethlehem according to Genesis 35:19. It's a bit confusing I think for us to see these two uh, blessings as the same message because at least in the ESV it translates it in the first part, may you act worthily in Ephrathah. It sounds like they are uh, sort of charging Boaz with a certain kind of behavior, charging him to behave in a worthy way. But that doesn't seem to be what they're doing. Uh, other translations put that first phrase in different ways. They say, may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, or may you achieve power in Ephrathah. That helps us to see the parallel that the same message be, is being given. The point of the prayer is uh, that they're praying that he might experience a rise in respect and honor among his people as a result of this union. And whether it be the blessings given toward Ruth or the blessings here toward Boaz, all of this hoped for blessing because of this new union is connected to how verse 12 ends. They're praying for these blessings and the expectation of them is coming, verse 12, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The point is, may this marriage result in fruitful blessing upon you. And that's clear even in the way that they appeal to the memories of Rachel and Leah and to Tamar, a great blessing of progeny that comes as a result. Those things are obvious. There's something else that happens here too, though, with these comparisons. Bringing up the name in particular, the name of Tamar, does something very powerful for us. It, it reminds us that this is not the first time that God has seen fit to work in and through circumstances like these. We see, when we remember Tamar, we're thinking of Genesis chapter 38. Uh, when we look back there, you don't need to turn there, but you can see in Tamar a woman very, very much like what Ruth has been in this story. In Tamar we see a woman of foreign descent, like Ruth has been here, and that's been such an important piece of this story. In Tamar we see a childless widow who is in need of leveret marriage in order to produce an heir, exactly like we've seen here with Ruth. The stories are not exactly the same. The story of Tamar is resolved in a sinful way because of Judah's sinful choices. Uh, and this story is resolved in a righteous way because of Boaz's righteous and faithful choices. And yet through that foreign woman, through Tamar, 
Judah's leading house found preservation with the birth of Perez. And it's, it's, it's almost as if we're repeating the story of Ruth, uh, but substituting in the name of Tamar. There's so many similarities here. So Ruth falls then into a line of thought that has shown up again and again in the Old Testament storyline. It's the line of thought that highlights God's love for and his willingness to care for the outcast and the foreigner, and even to work powerfully through the foreigner. It's what we saw in Tamar. It's what we have seen in Ruth. I read a statement that summed this up in a very punchy and beautiful and powerful way. Uh, and it went like this. Yahweh's care. Let me start that again. Yahweh cared as much for all the world's Ruths as Boaz did for Ruth. You can think about it in the way that in what we've seen going through this book of Ruth, in the way that uh, preservation and redemption has come to a people. Uh, you can see it in the way that uh, both Naomi and Ruth experienced his redemptive care. When our redeeming God is through with the events of this particular story, not only will his natural daughter, Naomi the Jew, be redeemed, but this Gentile woman as well will find this redemption, and they'll both be redeemed into the very same family when God is done working. And in fact, that redemption will have been accomplished through the love and faithfulness of the Gentile woman, not the Jewish woman. God has intentionally woven into the biblical story His mercies extended to every tongue and tribe and nation. And in fact, He has shown this priority even in the way that He weaves His redemption of Gentiles into the very line of the Messiah Himself. It really is striking how uh, how deliberate the writer is when Matthew gives us the genealogy of the Messiah, the completed genealogy at last. There's a lot of Old Testament genealogies showing the line of promise extending to the latest person, uh, incomplete genealogies of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 1, at, at last we get the complete genealogy of the Messiah. And when we get it, God's work through Gentile women, through foreign women, is intentionally highlighted. You might just look for a moment, keep your finger here and flip over to Matthew chapter 1. I'll read verses 2 to 6, because this so clearly shows us the emphasis in this genealogy on what I'm talking about. And that in a document that is designed to show us family descent through male relatives. It's a document designed to give the male names. And of course it does that all the way through. It leaves out all of the mothers, all of the wives, with just a few exceptions. I'll read Matthew 1, verses 2 to 6. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. I mean, it's just 
going out of its way. It leaves out any of the other women. The three that it mentions are the three times when God chose to work in his redemptive plan through these non-Jewish actors. And so in these references, coming back now to the book of Ruth, in this particular reference especially to Tamar, we're already getting perhaps some foreshadowing that just as Tamar became the mother of Judah's greatest house, maybe Ruth's motherhood will have similarly large ramifications to it. Look down at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. There's a detail that we, we have mentioned a few times in this study, that, but that probably has not caught our attention nearly so much as it would have caught the attention of the original Jewish audience. Uh, and that is the detail that Ruth's first marriage lasted for 10 years and produced no children. That would have been a very alarming, worrisome piece of information in this story. The original hearers now know that she has been redeemed. They know that she is married now. But that has not resolved what would have been one of the major conflicts in their minds. Whether she finds redemption or not, will an heir be produced? Is she someone who can perpetuate the line of Elimelech and Naomi? Will there be an heir? And in verse 13, the answer is immediate. There's no longer any, um, any anticipation that the writer produces for us. The answer is yes. He gave her conception. This is the reason that she became pregnant. The Lord granted this. He not only allowed her to conceive, but he gave her a son, which is significant in the matter regarding inheritance. It's what they would have been hoping for. It is important to note here, though, that a daughter could inherit at this time in Israel as well. Uh, Numbers chapter 27 is a beautiful story that really highlights God's love for and, and intentional care for the women of their society by allowing uh, even daughters to inherit when there were no male heirs, which of course is one of uh, a dozen ways in which women in biblical history are treated with far more uh, care and honor than anything that the world has produced. Uh, that's such a, such a major uh, mischaracterization of the God of the scriptures and of the history of his people that it would be anything else. So a daughter could have inherited, but the norm and certainly the preference was for a son to carry on the line. It's what they're hoping for and it's what God grants to them here. And we're going to see here shortly as we come to the final verses of this book that all of these prayers of blessing that are being given to Boaz and being given to Ruth, all of these uh, hopes for prosperity through this union are going to be realized. They're going to be yes and amen. Uh, and that's going to come about in the descendants that come from this line. She will indeed produce descendants of the import of the 12 sons of Israel. She will indeed surpass in her house, she and Boaz both, the house of Perez. In fact, the uh, line extending through this couple, uh, as the original audience does not yet know, I love, I love reading this and trying to remember what it would have been like for, for a Jewish audience to hear this for the first time 
At this point, they don't know yet that this line is leading to David. They don't know that. We know that. This line is going to extend as far as the king himself. The one man who will be spoken of as, in fact, the individual embodiment of the entire nation. So the fact of this child's birth is even larger than they yet realize in terms of accomplishing the prayers for blessing that have been given to Ruth and to Boaz. Well, as we come to verse 14, we're still not finished with blessings yet. We haven't gotten to babies. We're still in the blessings category because there's a second blessing to be given here. It's given by a new, uh, by a new set of, uh, of individuals, and the recipient is different as well. Verses 14 and 15. This is a blessing that we hear from the mouth of the women of the town, and it's issued not to Ruth and to Boaz, it's issued to Naomi. This is hugely significant. If you've been with us through this study, you remember what happened in Ruth chapter 1. This is terribly significant in light of Ruth chapter 1. Do you remember who Naomi addressed herself to at the end of that chapter and what she said to them? She stood before the women of the town and directed them to stop calling her Naomi. Change the name you use to refer to me. Call me Mara for a number of reasons. Here's what's happened to me since you've seen me last. I left here wonderful. I left here full. And Yahweh brought me back empty. So don't call me blessed. Call me bitter because of how bitterly God has treated me. That's what she said. <clears throat> That's what she said to them in Ruth chapter 1. She went out of her way to describe her betrayal at the hands of their God. Look again at what they say now in reply to her. Once the plans that God has had in mind the entire time are now visible for them to see, what is the final word on this? Verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And stop there. We've seen it all throughout this book. We've seen God's hand of providence leading these events forward. Now we hear the women of the town declare it publicly. That this entire pathway to redemption came to Naomi from the hand of Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. They're praising God for his faithfulness to Naomi. The very thing that she was, was rejecting in chapter 1 was declaring to be, in fact, the opposite of that, declaring to be his curse upon her. But if you look down, we'll skip for just a moment some of verse 14. If you look to the second half of verse 15, notice their awareness of how God's blessing came to Naomi through Ruth's love. I mean, again, they go out of their way here. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This is about as emphatic as you could possibly make such a statement for them to say what they say here, that Ruth to her, your daughter-in-law, they say, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. 
But think about the context they're saying that in. Think about the sort of culture they're saying that in. To, to speak of seven of something in this way, seven sons then, is to speak of the ideal situation. They're, in, they're imagining the ideal situation when it comes to offspring, perpetuating the name of the family, seven sons. And in a culture that strongly prefers sons to daughters. And they say, Ruth has been more to you than seven sons. Now, how could they say that? How could Ruth uh, possibly be thought of in such strong terms? Well, one of the reasons is the one that they mention explicitly, the love of Ruth. Ruth has loved Naomi in an absolutely rare way, to a rare extent, in a rare manner. She has exceeded everybody's expectations. You remember what Ruth said, what Boaz said to Ruth that night on the threshing floor, all the gate of my people know of your worth. She has been astounding the people of the town of Bethlehem for these three plus months. So it's astounding in terms of the extent and the manner of her love for Naomi. They've seen her self-sacrifice for Naomi. They've seen Naomi's bitterness and complaint, and yet Ruth's unceasing willingness to provide and to care and to sacrifice. But, you know, I think there's another thing here, too. I think that these women are actually saying more than they realize they're saying in describing Ruth in this way. If Naomi had, let's imagine that she had had seven sons. She got back to Mo, from Moab, her sons are alive, there's seven of them. Let's think about that situation. They would have had no trouble, probably, providing Naomi's family with offspring, perpetuating the name, continuing the line like Ruth has done. They could have accomplished that. And from a human perspective in their generation, to a far greater extent, seven sons can produce many more children than Ruth's one son here. They could have done that. Ruth has done something that seven sons could not have done. Because of Ruth's willingness to be redeemed by Boaz, we've seen how much of an act of sacrifice that was on her part. Because of her willingness to do that, she has connected Naomi's family directly to Boaz in terms of this offspring. She's given Naomi, in other words, much more than a perpetuated name. She has given her an exalted name. What we're about to find out is she's given Naomi the most exalted name of all the families of Israel. Not a further perpetuated name in Bethlehem. She's going to be much more than just a mother. She's going to be the honored ancestress of Israel's future leading family. And all of this comes to pass because in verse 13, baby Obed is born. Now we shift to the babies, to one baby in particular. Notice about this child, uh, several things for us to see. Notice first that he's the one that's being spoken of in verse 14 when a redeemer is mentioned. We're used to hearing the word redeemer in this book and thinking of Boaz. But look at verse 14. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Who are we talking about here? Verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, what does it say? Has given birth to him. She's talking about the baby 
here as they are giving this praise. The one that they're praising God for as a redeemer is the infant child, Obed. This is the only time in all of the scriptures that a child is spoken of in this way, spoken of as occupying the position of the redeemer. It uses the word kinsman redeemer here. Uh, we've, we've noticed that Boaz is the only walking, living, breathing example that's given to us of a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. But there are many places where the concept is spoken of as people doing this, uh, different relatives and such. A baby is never spoken of as fulfilling this sort of a place. And yet, that's the word that's given here to Obed. It does seem like they're using the term, this is Goel, the kinsman redeemer. They're using this in more of a, this is not a legal sense. They're speaking of him this way as sort of a nuance. They're emphasizing the protector role that this person would have. That's why they mention that he's going to care for her in her old age. So legally speaking, this child is not a redeemer, legally speaking, in this passage. That's Boaz. But they give the word to this child as they speak of him as being her redeemer, her protector. Notice as well the prayer that they give to, uh, regarding Obed and how it compares to the one that was made for Boaz. If you look back at verse 11, the prayer was given for Boaz's name that he would become famous in Bethlehem. And yet here in verse 14, when it comes to Obed, the prayer is that his name would become famous in Israel, not famous in Bethlehem. They're praying that this son will even exceed his father in terms of renown, in terms of fame. He's finally given a name in verse 17. Naomi has just been given the significant role in raising the child that we read in verse 16. And in 17 we read this, that the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. This is very, very interesting. It's very confusing to us what is happening here. Uh, his name is not confusing. The name means servant. Seems like they're thinking of the role he's going to play in taking care, serving Naomi in her old age. But it's this act of the neighbors naming the child that causes universal head scratching here. We're not familiar with something like this happening anywhere else. Uh, people have tried to um, come up with a number of suggestions. The fact is we really just don't know for sure why this happened. Is there a local custom that we're not aware of that's possible? Could it mean that the women suggested the name and Boaz and Ruth so appreciated them that they took the suggestion? It, it could mean that. We're just not exactly sure. Uh, there have been some who, uh, liberal scholars who care nothing for the sanctity of God's Word and don't see it as being inerrant, uh, try to just actually erase the words and change them because this so does not match the custom of the time. But this is a most unusual uh, procedure. It doesn't really matter, though, in terms of understanding the story, does it? What matters is this. This is the first time that we officially hear him spoken of as the son of Naomi. This baby, born to Boaz and Ruth. But he is declared here the son of Naomi. Because he exists, Elimelech's family line is going to endure. Their land will not be lost. Their name will not be lost. And that was the whole point of the transaction that happened last week. 
right? So that this child would play this legal role. The question that can come up to us, though, is we're about to read a genealogy that speaks of him as the son of Boaz, right? Uh, and this is, this is not hard for us to understand. We just need to take a moment to, to see, uh, to put the categories in the right places. Obed as the son of Naomi is a description of Obed's particular legal role that he's playing here in the inheritance of a, of a name and a land in their society. It's a real role that Obed has. It's not the only social relationship that the child is going to have. And certainly the town understands what's happening here in terms of, of Ruth as a stand-in for Naomi to perpetuate the line. But they know that the child came from Obed and from Ruth. We need to understand that just because this son allows that legal protection for Naomi and Elimelech doesn't mean that there is no relationship recognized between him and Boaz. So when we come to the genealogy in a few minutes, in verses 18 to 22, we're not going to be dealing with legal matters there. We're going to be dealing with physical descent, the purpose of a genealogy. Uh, the, the last thing that I would bring to our mind as we're thinking about this baby is to point out to you a parallel between how this story is turning out for Boaz and some statements that are made later in the progression of, of Israel's story. So let's notice a couple of things here. I'll, I'll direct you back to verses 11 and 12. And then we're going to turn to one other place in the Old Testament and just note some comparisons. So if, if we go back in our thinking to verses 11 and 12, we've already seen how Boaz is given a blessing there in reference to his house. This is the way that it was described. They envision Boaz's house becoming as the great houses of Israel, like the house of Jacob and the house of Judah. And they've said that this blessing of his house is going to happen through the coming of his descendant. Well, if we go forward a bit, if you turn ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 7, just think about what we see as we consider this picture in relation to the picture of David himself. We've noticed how much a, a, a point of emphasis in this book we have on David. David will be literally the last word of the book. In the only place in the scriptures where a genealogy ends a book, this is very important, we're supposed to be noticing some, some parallels. Boaz came into this story uh, not in infancy, did he? Boaz's birth was not a birth that was anticipated in scripture, that was celebrated in a way that's recorded in scripture. Boaz came onto the scene, already grown, proceeded to act in faithfulness, and then the highlight of his blessing comes at the birth of his child. It's what we've seen in Boaz. And of course, that's exactly the same thing that we see when we think about David. David emerges in the story as a shepherd boy, right? He's not as old as Boaz, but his birth is not spoken of. His birth is not emphasized and looked forward to in the text of Scripture. He comes onto the scene already grown. And the highlight of the blessings that we see the Bible tell us about regarding David come in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And they specifically come in reference to his offspring. Begin in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 16. This is what God said to David. This is the Davidic covenant. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And all that we need to notice at this point is this. Boaz's blessing set off a line of descent that we're about to see in the genealogy leading to David. David here sets off a line of descent that will take the rest of the Old Testament, leading to the arrival of a future son of his, who is the reason that the house of David will be blessed forever. In other words, we're seeing more and more as we finish Ruth that this is a piece in a much wider story. There's more going on here, much more, than simply the tale of a particular couple in a particular moment in time. Now, on that note, I would shift this here to the third uh, point of this morning, and that is to zoom out quite a bit uh, and to think about, uh, about two in particular big picture issues. Now, the first one will concern this genealogy at the end of, of our text. Let me read that to us again, verses 18 to 22, and I'd like you to do two things as I read this. First, would you count the number of individual names, right? When Perez is mentioned twice, don't count twice. Number of names, count them. Second, ask yourself as we read these names, how much do I know about these people? Are these people whose lives I'm quite familiar with? Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And there's the end of the book. How many did you count? You don't have to show me in case you got it wrong. If you count it to ten, then you got it right. There are ten names in this genealogy. And if you think about it, I mean, we've heard about Boaz and, well, really about Boaz here, a piece of his life because of this account that this genealogy is in. But these are the names of people that you don't really know much about, do you? I can say that with a great deal of confidence. I don't know much about them. None of us know much about them. Because that's what this 10-name genealogy is doing in the Old Testament. It is fast-forwarding us through history and really showing us where we need to focus our attention next. It zooms us through a series of generations to focus us on the person of David. So if you search, if you have, if you have Bible software and you want to really save yourself some time, and you search in that piece of software, Hezron, or Aminadab, or Nashon, you're not going to find anything. You're going to find their name a number of times in genealogies that show the, the transmission of the promise line. You're not going to find any information about their lives. These are the people's lives who are, we are fast-forwarded through to get to David. And in fact, that's what 
That's what this 10 name genealogy is meant to do. It's not just showing us the relationship between Boaz and David, although clearly it's doing that. It's showing us where the Bible is going to turn our attention next. This is the third of three 10 name genealogies in the Bible. This happens two other times in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 4 is the first one. Uh, excuse me, Genesis 5 uh, is the first one. In the first four chapters of Genesis, we are told of the creation of the world and of Adam and of the fall of Adam and the near-term consequences of that fall. And then we come to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is one big ten-name genealogy that zooms us through a big piece of history. It goes from Adam to Noah. And then what happens in chapter 6? We slow down again. We hear all about Noah and the flood and Noah's sons until we get to Shem. And then Genesis 11, we have the second of three ten-name genealogies. From Shem to Abraham. And then we slow down, and the rest of the book of Genesis tells us about Abraham and what happened, what the Lord did through him, his sons, and what happened to them. And the third one is here in Ruth chapter 4, from Perez to David, and stops at David. So what we have here in these three ten-person genealogies, think about this. We're being given a framework for how, we're, how to read our Old Testament. We're directed well, what to focus on as the key turning points. The focal points of the story are Adam and Noah and Abraham and David. And what do we have in those names? Those are the covenant heads of the Old Testament. Those are the places of the Old Testament covenants. You have the Adamic covenant. You have the Noahic covenant. You have the Abrahamic covenant which is realized and lived out by means of the, Mos the covenant given through Moses, and you have the Davidic covenant. Those are the major covenants of the Old Testament. So as we see, I just, I, I feel it important for us as we're looking at the book of Ruth to notice that particular effect that, uh, that this book plays in the whole course of the scriptures. There is much more going on here than what we're often aware of. I've heard it described at times as... Um, well, one man described it as uh, dysfunctional closet syndrome, our sense about the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is full of really important things that we need that have all been kind of chucked in there, and there's no organizational pattern to these things. That's just simply not true. There is great intentionality in the way God has preserved and handed us His Scriptures. And when we notice those things, we ought to really notice them. So there's the significance of this genealogy in the wider course of the Old Testament. The second big picture issue that is raised for us, uh, even against our will, by the book of Ruth, is one that I've been asked about more than once since we have started this study. It's been on your minds, maybe more of you than I know. Uh, and the question is this, are these kinsman redeemer laws, this whole situation with a brother marrying his uh, sister, his, his widowed sister-in-law to perpetuate their name. What is this doing in the realm of marriage? Are the kinsman redeemer laws mandating, um, approving, creating a necessity of polygamy? Has that been a thought that's come into your mind? This is, this is very much unlike our experience today. We're not used to something like this. And what I've realized in preparing to answer this is that if I do, we will be here till 
10.30 this morning. And we simply can't do that. I'm not going to do that to you. So what I am going to do this morning is raise the question so that, uh, because it, it's, been, it's been out there. We need to th- and it's a very important question, actually, when it comes to what we understand the law to be and to be doing. So I'm going to raise the question, and then I'm going to completely skip it and move to the third and final big picture issue. And I'm going to bring it up in order to make an invitation to you. I'm about to take literally two and a half pages of my notes and shift them over. If this is something you've wondered about, or that's a thought that's come up in your mind, and you'd like to know how, this, how we're to think about this, send me a message this afternoon, and I'll just email you my notes so you can get a chance to see um, how this fits into our understandings of marriage and of the Old Testament law in particular. So there's that invitation. All right. So I drew where I need to shift over here. Here we go. Um, the third big picture issue, for, and the final one for this morning in our time, is to think about what this book has shown us regarding a word we've used a few times in this study. It's the word typology. The Bible speaks about in the New Testament there being types and shadows in the Old Testament. What does that mean? I've, I've tried to help us see throughout this study uh, the ways that Boaz, we're thinking of Boaz, in his person and his work, um, how Boaz is serving to establish what Paul will speak of in Ephesians chapter 3 when he talks about the mystery of Christ. We talked about that in the first week of this study, the mystery of Christ. Let me reread to you two verses in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5. Paul said this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. When he talks about a mystery there, how does he describe it? This is a mystery the mystery of Christ, it was not revealed or made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets. It's very important that we understand what he means and doesn't mean about mystery here. When he says that this mystery was not made known in other generations, he does not mean that they knew nothing about what he's calling the mystery of Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, right? the mystery of the Messiah. He doesn't mean that they knew nothing about the mystery of the Messiah. He means that they didn't understand the meaning of the mystery of the Messiah that was being progressively revealed to them in their time. It's the meaning that has now been revealed. But they didn't have the meaning. Even as they wrote about these things that constitute the mystery of the coming Messiah, they wrote about them and they didn't understand what they were writing. So, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12 speaks about this. And it describes the prophets themselves writing, who, who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, giving us a prophecy and prediction concerning the coming Messiah. And it says of them that they themselves zealously tried to search and inquire into these things. And then in verse 12 it says, even angels long to look into these things. It's just amazing. The story is unfolding in history, and more and more they're getting a sense God is going to do. There's a Messiah coming. Ever since since the fall, since Genesis 3, he, he, he gave us a picture that someday a seed of the woman was coming. 
how is this going to happen? How will God wind up being just and the justifier of sinners? How is this? And they wondered, and they wondered, and they couldn't figure out how it came together, but they did believe that it was going to happen. That's what faith was in the Old Testament, belief in the promises of God, even when they couldn't see how they might come together. And we learn there in verse 12 that even angels wondered. That is so cool to me to hear that. The point is that they were being given a lot of information, a lot of pieces, but they didn't know how it fit together. When we say that Boaz is a type of Christ, that's what we mean. We don't mean that he's a kind of Christ. We mean that God is using his place in the story typologically as a, as a very big and shining piece of this puzzle. There's a man named Ardell Day, who he's the professor of New Testament and Greek at Northwestern. He's written a lot about typology. He, he writes about this in a way that's been so helpful to me, and I wanted to share a bit of this with you. It's a sort of a long quote, and I apologize. I try not to do that. But he compares what God is doing with this mystery and with typology in the Old Testament. He compares it to what happens when an author writes a mystery novel. And he's speaking about, he says, he's speaking about the word musterion, which is the word for mystery here. You hear mystery, musterion. He says, musterion, biblically conceived, is akin to how writers craft mystery novels. Within characters, events, settings, and plot conflicts throughout the storyline of mystery novels, authors embed hints, foreshadows, prefigurements, harbingers, that incite anticipation of full and final resolution to be revealed with surprises, invoking belief that seeks understanding. It's just a fantastic way to describe the faith of the Old Testament. This is what it invokes, belief that seeks understanding. He continues, it is this way with Scripture's unfolding storyline, not for readers only, but first for characters who, inherit, who inhabit the story, including Adam. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Moses, Ruth, David, Mary. As they perform their redemptive historical roles, for each of them, the unfolding story engenders hope that anticipates the promised seed who brings salvation. So what we've studied then for the last two months is a book that perfectly fits as a perfect piece of a perfect revelation of our God, whose aim and purpose is the glorification of His Son, the one who will come as the Redeemer of His people. He has prepared us to understand what He's doing in Christ with all of these pictures along the way. You think of the, the effect that the sacrificial system has on our understanding of sin and atonement and propitiation. You think of what Ruth and Boaz does for us in understanding how someone might redeem someone else that they love at cost to them standing in their place. These pictures prepare us to know what we're talking about when we come to the New Testament and God says, now here's what happened when my son came. So let me be so bold then as to close our time this morning and to close the whole study of Ruth by summarizing the book's significance with three quick points. Number one, the story of Ruth 
is a picture of God's love for all the world. Number two, the story of Ruth is a picture Number two, the story of Ruth is a picture of your hopelessness if someone worthy is not willing to rescue and redeem you from your sin. Number three, the story of Ruth is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ is the greatest resolution to the greatest conflict that this world has ever seen. Every blessing that we need, every blessing that might be hoped for, for those that we love, every hope and dream that we have, they all hang on Jesus' willingness to redeem. So that then the story of the New Testament can be summed up in three words. He was willing. This is the God. That we worship and serve today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are never humbled enough as we are confronted with your word there remains in us every day of our lives until you take us home there remains hard-heartedness there remains pride that would hide the ways that we are revealed before you as we confront and are confronted by the scriptures nonetheless lord as your people we know because of your promises and because of what you've done in the past in our lives, we know that you are at work in us. You have opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are very patiently and kindly, but certainly and progressively revealing to us by your spirit our continued sins and shortcomings so that you might purge them, so that you might wash us and renew us. Lord, we trust that even this morning as we have sat under your word, you have done that. And we thank you. We thank you for the ways that you do not leave us to ourselves and our own devices, but you through our lives, you continue to show us, to give us understanding of your word so that we might treasure it all the more. Thank you for it, Father. We pray that you would use it in our lives this week and indeed the rest of our lives, that you would use what we have been confronted by this morning for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.